Okay, so we are going to continue our um, Sunday sermon sessions in the Gospel of John, and we will find ourselves in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 for this day. Of course, it is worthy of mention that uh, we have a new brother in Christ. Gabriel was immersed uh, for the forgiveness of his sins, born again out of water and the Spirit, now a legal citizen of the kingdom of God as per the Scripture's instructions. And um, it is truly a blessing to have you, brother. And uh, you will continue to grow with us in the knowledge of this book and in good faith and love uh, towards each other as we are united. And so that's always a, an honorable thing to, to recognize. We love you very much, and we're very happy you're part of this family, Gabriel. We are also, of course, honored to have all of you congregate together here as the East Coast Congregation. Um, we all need each other. We all at times find ourselves in weaknesses from one angle to the next, but together we can kind of patch those places in each other and make ourselves at peace and united to uplift each other, to build each other, to have hope, to have goals, to have things we want to uh, 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 look forward to. And we are wise to have a humble heart where we can all learn from each other and we can all seek to better each other uh, within the boundaries of our Lord and Master and the many blessings found in His church. We've been reading and going through the Gospel of John and thus far we have seen from chapter 1 through chapter 11, if you will, uh, the ministry of the Christ in the span of the years he would proclaim the truth and perform many miraculous things. And we will now be entering in the section of the gospel where we find ourselves more so focused or the gospel focus on uh, the week leading up to the day Jesus would give up his life for uh, all of us, if you will, for humanity and how deep and life-changing that can be if you embrace it, if you welcome it, right? To have those open borders of the mind and receiving the message. Of course, this message of life in a world fallen to death, and many of us who have lived on this earth long enough have experienced the pain that comes when a loved one departs from this realm into the next realm, we find sorrow at times in our hearts and loss. But through Christ, He can heal and mend those sorrows and those unanswered questions if we allow Him to do so through the instruction of His Word. And that gives us hope for that life. And we can certainly persevere in a positive way moving forward. This message of life, the Christ came and proclaimed, and because of that, he became the recipient of hostility, of hate, and murder from the hands of his own people, his own kind, his own culture. 
And that is a very difficult thing to go through when you are persecuted by those closest to you, if you will, those nearest to you and dearest to you, those who may have been found within your inner circle, within your entourage, that would harden their hearts in such a way to uh, betray you, to uh, uh, speak all manners of evil against you, to bear false witness against you. Um, He had to go through those moments in life, but he did so willfully with the strength and obedience towards his father, as both were equal, and he fulfilled the gospel plan, ultimately, which gives us this hope we have even today. But we will see in this section, uh, this portion of scripture, within the context that led there, or led us to this moment, from within chapter 11, in regards to the death and, of course, burial and resurrection of a man named Lazarus, whom Christ loved. He loved Lazarus, and he loved his family. And we saw the power of the Christ through the spiritual means we practically apply in our day and age now that we can also live, never to die again, in Christ. He has the power to raise us up with him, to wash our sins away, and to have us as one of his uh, 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 citizens, as he is our king. And we saw that through the death and resurrection of Lazarus, and we also saw how it led to, the consp- uh, the, uh, to, to, to his enemies to conspire to murder him. <laughs> it kind of blows our mind that someone would want to murder a man who can raise the dead. We've all spoken, and if we think and use our minds, if you knew a man who could raise the dead, we would want to treat him very well. For he could perhaps bring back our loved ones, could he not? as he did with Lazarus. And so he should have been protected, but instead his own kind sought to murder him. And of course, we've seen the reasons why. The religious leaders of the day loved the praise of men, and they were greedy, and they could control the people, for they sought themselves as scholarly and educated, and the gatekeepers. And when they saw their control begin to dwindle away and that they were following the Christ, they grew quite bittered in their hearts, did they not? And, and, and with anger, and it blinded them in their hypocrisy to find fault in Christ and to ridicule him and mock him and ultimately seek to murder him. And so they conspired to kill Jesus. And this, of course, again, as a result of the Christ performing miraculous things and speaking truth to them. And this leads us to the portion of Scripture we will um, enter into at this hour. Verse 1, chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Christ is, of course, the source of life. And through Christ, mankind need not remain dead. They can live again eternally. 
So they, in verse 2, made him a supper there. They, of course, wanted to provide gratitude to Jesus. They wanted to thank him and praise him for the deeds of good compassion and love that he had provided to them. And so they made him a supper there, and Martha, verse 2, was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And we need to place ourselves in first century Palestine within the mind of Judaism and the culture and the traditions of their age. They would not sit at a table like we do today. They would be found on a mat on the floor, if you will, and kind of reclining and would have like one elbow reclining and their legs spread out, their feet there bare, and they would eat. And they would share a piece of bread or, or whatnot, and they, they would eat that way. And there are still cultures today who, who eat that way. There's nothing wrong with eating that way if that is the way you eat. Uh, and so that's how they were positioned. And at this time, in this culture and their traditions, uh, women would not have been allowed around the table. And so you would find only the men there around the table, if you will, reclining and eating. And it's not that they were mistreating the women, per se, right? It's just each of them had a designed role and task to participate in. And uh, the women's part and participation was not at the table there, but in various other ways. You'd have to, again, I encourage you to go look into that kind of culture and tradition. So that gives us the kind of visual setting to the account that is being revealed. So they made him supper there and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And it is a pleasure to serve, is it not? I find great pleasure in serving and producing hospitality as all of you do. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's not a, uh, if you will, a, um, from the position of uh, slavery, if you will, and I speak of slavery in the unrighteous way, but more so of the, I want to serve, I want to help, I want to do these things. It doesn't diminish me as a male or a female, it's just I, I, it gives me joy to see you receive a gift. And so Martha is here in the text, and uh, she's serving. But Lazarus, of course, uh, was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. And in verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. <laughs> I always find that word quite interesting, nard. So many things could be said with nard. But it's <laughs> a costly, it's a costly and luxurious perfume. So it must have smelled of elegance and a, a, a smell that would have been pleasing for them, I suppose. And you can still find that, by the way, I think in locations in India, if my mind is correct. And it might not be, so don't fact check me. Go look at it for yourselves. But uh, it would be an expensive and well sought out perfume. Ointment of sorts, right? And uh, it speaks as being pure, which would allow us to know that perhaps to a lesser degree and price, depending on your budget of the day, perhaps you'd have to purchase nard that would not be as pure. But this here, nard, this perfume, was pure. So it would have been of the top tier 
perfume. And so Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Very interesting setting. A few things taking place that would be different or rough around the edges. Why would Mary be at the table as a woman? And why would she have allowed her hair to be set free to wipe the feet? That would kind of been seen as taboo in the day. For a woman to do such a thing would have been seen as perhaps morally loose, not acceptable, if you will, in that society. And uh, she proceeds to do this act of good heart and will regardless. So it kind of shows her courage, right? (laughs) In a male setting, if you will, in a culture where male is sitting at the table, here comes this woman, her hair let loose, and doing this to Jesus, it must have been a bit like, awkward what is she doing why is she doing this you know but christ will indeed take her side won't he 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 understands what's happening and he knows the value of what's taking place she's not breaking any law she is not being found guilty of breaking god's law she might be breaking the traditions of the men of the day but she's not breaking god's law which is why god indeed will take her uh, side of things. So, the uh, house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. (laughs) And I can't help but think in our modern age in the smells of perfume, I'd probably get all watery-eyed and be like, I can't breathe. I like perfume. I appreciate the smell of perfume. I've I've worn uh, 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 male... uh, uh, Is it perfume or is it cologne? Cologne, yeah. Let's not get things mixed up. Uh... It can be strong, right? But again, we're looking back 2,000 years here. Uh, I'm not certain if the smell would have been sweet or strong and musky or whatever it might have been. But in their culture, in their age, this is something that was very well favored. They would have wanted, like that would have been a, a pleasing smell to them, of course. So here is something good happening to Jesus. The gratitude, the thanks, the joy to have him in our house. And he is well loved there. And he loves them very much. I mean, he brought Lazarus back from the dead. Four days in the grave he was. And he came back. Christ, his power to confirm his word. But of course, with what is good and with what is righteous, we will immediately see in this fallen world what is evil and what is unrighteous. And in verse 4, we see John and the penmanship of the Holy Spirit insert Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' disciples. Now we need to really appreciate the depth of what's happening Because Judas was one of the twelve, was he not? He was a selected member of the inner circle, a recipient of all the blessings Christ had to give, salvation. Certainly, 
as one of those blessings. A friend, a close friend, who was intending, it says, to betray Jesus. This is verse 4, chapter 12, John, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was numbered among them, who was intending to betray Jesus. It was already in his heart to betray Jesus. So just think of the deception and the masquerade that Judas is now portraying to those around him as within his heart he is seeking to betray Jesus, yet outwardly portraying himself in a certain way. And he has something to say, doesn't he? Verse 5. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? So here is Judas Iscariot. He has an objection to what has taken place in regards to the pure and costly nard that was poured on the Messiah and wiped with the hair of a woman, a dear friend. He has an objection. No opposition, protest. This here perfume should have been sold. And just think of the money we could have made from selling this costly perfume and we could have used it for the poor. Oh, well, Judas is a man of God. V virtuous, righteous. That's a good thing. We should be willing to give to the poor. You see how he is displaying himself to his peers around him as someone who would have moral judgment to do what's right. And he's also making a statement of judgment against, well, Jesus and Mary. How dare Mary do that? She's not thinking right. Then Jesus, you accept that? You're not thinking right. Judas knows what's right. We should sell this and give it to the poor. Many would have agreed with him. Many would have said, yeah, that sounds like something right to do. That sounds like something. I mean, this family must have had means. If they could have this kind of perfume and they had access to a gravesite where they had their brother Lazarus buried and they have a house, they are people of means in this first century. Why waste all this costly perfume on Jesus, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. Oh, Judas, he's such a good guy. He's such a good Christian. Thinking about the poor. Now he said this, verse 6. Why did he say this? Well, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. But that's not what the people are seeing. 
what the people are seeing is this morally upright individual who's talking about let's give to the poor. But within the heart of the man, what is revealed? He's a thief. And you can't make this up. He's the treasurer. He's the treasurer. He would have been trusted with the money. He might have been a good budgeteer, if you will. So he has access to the money, to the treasury. They trusted him. A close friend. He's a brother. But he's a thief. He's greedy. And he's a betrayer. How can we discern the difference between Diotrephes and Demetrius? How can we discern the difference between Jesus and Judas? To the crowds, to the people who would see and hear what Judas had to say, they might have sided with Judas and be like, yeah, we should have sold that and given it to the poor. Judas don't care about the poor. But he'll really make you believe he does. He'll really, really, really make you believe he does. And he's really, really good at it. These kinds are well and alive today as well. And they infiltrate, and they manipulate, and they dominate. They cause chaos and division. Why? They want access to the treasury. They want access to the treasury. It's all about greed. And it's all about control. And Judas had a growing chip on his shoulder. And this here was the last straw in his book. Because shortly after this event, what does he do? He goes to the Pharisees to get Jesus murdered for measly, some measly pennies, if you will. Be careful when that chip, it bitters in your heart. It'll make you do all kinds of nasty things, like bringing the Messiah to the cross. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. This here man gave his argument in a way in which made her, the woman, Mary, and Jesus, him, the thieves. They're the thieves. They're stealing all this money when we should have been giving it to the poor. He just wanted access. He saw it as losing his money. Look at what they're doing with my money. The love of money. It'll get you in a whole mess of things. Therefore, as a result of the heart of Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' best friends, the inner circle, a brother, he says, let her alone. Well, who is her? Again, Mary who had done a good deed, a good motive of the heart to love Jesus. And she would have been paying attention to the teachings of Jesus, and she would have had insight in knowing that Jesus has been speaking about this coming day soon to arrive where he gives his life. And so it is of a good custom, if he is going to give his life, then he should be anointed. Jesus says, let her alone, leave her be, so that she may keep it, for the day of my burial. Now, this, of course, from the translation of the New American Standard, 
not as accurate as it would be in some of your translations, perhaps the King James or the New King James, which would speak it more clearly. What she has done was done, of course, for the preparation of the coming cross. And it was a good thing that she was doing what she had done. It's a good thing. We might find that strange in our culture, of course, if I start pouring perfume on your feet and wiping it with my hair. You'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> but, of course, in this century, in this culture, in this, in this context, it's a, it's a sign of great honor and love. And Jesus warmly receives it, and he tells them, of course, with instruction, for you, verse 8, always have the poor with you. The poor were with you yesterday, the poor are with you today, and the poor are going to be with you tomorrow. You will always have an opportunity to do good to those who are in need. Right? And we, yet this day, know that to be true. You don't need to go far in this city, right? To see people who are in need, who may need clothes, who may need food, who may need shelter, who may need a smile and a good thought and a good word and a positive motivation. They will always be around till the day all of this comes to its end. But you do not always have me. Jesus was within the week of his passion where he was going to willfully depart this earth at the hands of godless men nailed to a Roman tree. He was not always going to be there. So this good deed was being done while he lived and it was a well-received gift. And it also brings forth priority. The Christ should be priority. The Christ is whom we follow. So the large crowd, verse 9, of the Jews then learned that he was there. The grapevine, it's active. They get the word. And they came. And these Jews, of course, understands within context both those who love Jesus, those who are curious about Jesus, and those who hated him, and those who only sought to go find fault and report back to their superiors. So the large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Not only are they seeking to see the source of life, but they are seeking to see the evidence that proved he is the source of life. So you have Jesus, who has the power to raise the dead, and you have Lazarus as the evidence that there is such a thing as life after death. It's unavoidable. It's unforgettable. It's an objective, absolute standard of witness to count reality. It happened, and there's no way around that. And they wanted to see it. But, in verse 10, the chief priests 
plan to put Lazarus to death also. I mean, how could you want to, how, how, how should I say, how completely blind and rebellious in your heart must you be? How prideful in your heart must you be? Do you know why the chief priests were now even planning to murder Lazarus? Chief priests were Sadducees, mostly so. Do you know what Sadducees believed and preached? There is no resurrection of the dead. It don't exist. It's not real. No one can die and come back from the dead. So they got a problem, don't they? Here they have a man who claimed to raise the dead and has, and they have the man in whom was raised from the dead. So they have the source of the power and they have the evidence proving the source of the power. Got to get rid of them. Got to get rid of them. Making us look bad. That's not what we teach. That's not what we believe. That's not what we've been telling the people we control. We're losing our control. And if we lose our control, we lose the money. And these people were greedy people. But these people are the religious leaders of the day. It's just truly saddening and unfortunate to have this witnessed account looking into the hearts of men who would seek to murder Jesus and the man Jesus rose from the dead. It should be a celebration. It should be festivities. It should be to praise God and bring glory to God. You see the difference between the lowly and humble Mary and the household of Lazarus compared to these religious leaders? Is it so different today? Is it so different today? So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This was a continuous growing activity. They were, they, they were withdrawing themselves, withdrawing themselves from these religious leaders because Christ in his life, in his teachings, would refute the hypocrisy of these religious leaders and some people were catching on to it. They're like, hey, wait a minute. So they needed to get rid of him. They had to. There's no way around this. They're so blinded by their hate and bitterness. So sad to see Judas Iscariot and to see these chief priests. And you can understand the wisdom and insight of this account through that perspective. And we are, of course, blessed to read this account. But we also recognize the other perspective to this insight, which is the love of Christ. He has the power to give us eternal life. He has the power to give us eternal life. And we saw those who loved him show him gratitude and love. And my dear friends, there's only those two paths in life. And whether you accept it or not, you're going to be in one of those 
parties. Either the party that receives life from Jesus and loves Jesus, or the ones who want to murder him, not believe in him, deny him, reject him, and be found in the darkness of pride and sinful beliefs. Remember, these religious leaders had created Christ in their own image. And when Christ came and was not as they had created the image that they intended him to be, they, 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 they did not accept him. No, you're, you don't look like or speak like the Christ we created in our, in, our, in, our, in our own image. So therefore, it's going to be a problem. And of course, Christ is always in control. He is always in control through the free will of men. And therein shows the power of God. Through the free will of men, God is still always in control of his life. The Christ will choose when the right time is to be permitted to the hands in which he would be crucified. What a powerful portion of scripture. And my dear friends, it is always available to each and every one of you to be raised from the dead. If we are dead in our sins, now we speak spiritually. You have to open your spiritual mind to see things spiritually, to have faith and trust in the Messiah. You need not die in your sins. You can be raised from the dead, but it takes faith to see it. And we indeed were encouraged and blessed to see it this past week as Gabriel was raised from the dead through Christ. To become a member of the family of God, you must be born again out of water and the Spirit. That is the only way that is in accordance to the words of the Holy Spirit. To be clothed with Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. To be buried with Christ, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Peter knew this is what saved. 1 Peter 3, 21 clearly states it. It is the power of Christ when we call on his name to have our sins washed away, Acts 22, 16. And all of these, pointing back to John 3, 3 and John 3, 5, the new birth, all who sought to be raised from the dead, out of the tomb, in Christ, they were fully immersed, plunged, dipped, submerged, and risen out. It takes faith. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Whoever does not believe shall be damned. That's Mark 16, 16. Why? Because if you don't believe, you'll never trust to be saved by Jesus in the waters of baptism. You won't trust it. You won't see it. You'll ridicule it. You'll mock it. You'll deny it. You'll reject it. You won't see it. It takes faith. Without faith, we cannot be pleasing. Hebrews eleven six. We cannot meritoriously earn our salvation. It cannot be done. It takes the grace of God. 
Okay, so this will conclude our sermon session for this day. Please know salvation is always available to you while you have breath in your lungs and a thinking mind. And if you have questions or seek to obey the gospel, this can be provided to you this very day. You can certainly approach us and speak to us after the services. All right, let's go to our song.